chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. If you're able, please stand with me. We're going to stand as we read God's word. This morning we're going to read Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. That's on page 850 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. Follow as I read. As I read, remember, we're reading God's word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has been done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. May it satisfy our souls and send us to a world hungry for good news. You may be seated. Well, um, we're going to get into this passage. I can't believe we're, fi- we're finally to Mark 14, right? There's only 16 chapters, and it's a really short one. So we are getting, uh, we're getting close to the finish line. Um, before we do that, though, I just uh, I want to take a moment and pray. I was reflecting over this weekend that uh, this Sunday last year, uh, myself and Tim Campbell were in Turkey, and I had an opportunity to preach at a church there that we're partnered with. And uh, maybe you know, maybe you don't, but we have a number of ministry partners in Turkey and are really trying to see the gospel advance in that part of the world. And uh, if you watch the news, you, you heard about uh, the, the tragedy that happened there yesterday where there was a bombing in Ankara, which is the capital city kind of in the, in the center of the country. And uh, 95 people, last I heard, were, were, have been killed and hundreds more injured and um, I just, in light of the fact that we have relationships with people, not in Ankara, but in Turkey, that are significantly influenced by this, I just want to take a moment and pray. So would you join me and uh, let's pray for our friends there. Uh, Father in heaven, I thank you that you are the ruler of all nations. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. And so God, we acknowledge that you are sovereign and you are good and God our prayer is that you would provide comfort to the people who are mourning and grieving who are hurting in light of uh, the bombings that happened yesterday in Turkey and God we pray as well that you would use this that your spirit would be already preparing this to allow some people to believe in the gospel God was such a small percentage of Christians there we ask that you would allow our partners and the other believers in that country to be faithful that they would boldly witness uh, to the truth of Jesus. And God, we pray that you would use this in ways that only you can. 
And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to turn our attention now to Mark here. And uh, as we get started, I, I guess the, one of the main things I think we need to acknowledge as we begin is that the world rarely has a problem with moderate Christianity. Right? Christianity is not very popular right now. Jesus remains fairly popular. People kind of like him, mostly because they can sort of mold him into whatever they think he was like. But Christianity as a whole is not very popular. Um, but what's more acceptable is moderate Christianity. People are kind of okay with that. The world rarely gets upset about moderate Christianity. What they get mad about is serious, committed, extravagant, this is going to set the core of my life kind of Christianity. That's a big problem, right? Just think about our political candidates. If you think sort of culturally, um, it's still very much the case, if you look at polls, that people want a candidate that has some sort of faith, right? Uh, Atheist candidates rarely get very far. They don't, there's a pressure to be of some sort of faith. At the same time, there's a pressure to not have your faith influence what you would do in office, right? So politicians are very clear to say, well, my, my faith governs my private life, but my faith wouldn't influence my policy decisions. And everyone, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's very good. We want culturally people who have moderate faith and keep it to themselves. It sort of warms their heart, but it doesn't influence anything, and it doesn't really come out you know, we're okay with moderate Christianity. So that's culturally. Even personally, I think a number of people feel like this. I know for me, I, I've told this story before, but, but I always think about it. When I was in junior high, I didn't go very often to the, the student ministry at, at the church I went to. I was real busy with sports and other stuff. And honestly, God didn't have a whole lot of my heart. So I just went when there was a big event or when they were talking about dating. Um, which there's probably kids like that in our student ministry as well. Um, So I went one night, uh, and I was in, I think, seventh grade, and they were talking about dating, and they had this panel that was sort of talking about the physical side of dating and all that sort of stuff. And this one particular guy said that he had made a commitment that he would not kiss anyone until his wedding day. And I was like, that guy's crazy. Like, I I like everybody else on the panel but him, right? Like, that's... That's extreme. That's, that's way too out there. Like, I, I, I'm okay with kind of my faith, and I ask Jesus into my heart, and, you know, he kind of helps me in my life. And, but, man, I'm going to give up kissing. No, I'm not interested, right? We don't like, culturally speaking, personally, extreme Christianity. We want it in moderation. And what we're going to look at here today in this passage, what we just read, is an example of extravagant faith, extravagant worship, over the top. Now, it's interesting because it it comes in a a fascinating setting. If you kind of look at the setting that we're in for this gospel, on Friday of Passion Week, that's what we're looking at this last week of Jesus' life. On Friday, Jesus will be killed. He will be crucified. We're now on Wednesday of Passion Week. So just a few days before Jesus will die, that's where we are. And and the theme of chapter 14, if you're taking notes or just want to think about this in the coming weeks, the theme of this whole section, this whole chapter, is the abandonment of Jesus. It's all building to the point when he will be crucified, when he won't just be abandoned by his friends, but he'll be abandoned on the cross by his father, paying the penalty of the sins for whoever would trust him. So chapter 14 is building to this abandonment, this abandonment. All the people who love Jesus, all the people who are near to Jesus, all the people who are loyal to Jesus will bail. They won't be loyal. They'll abandon him. 
One commentator said that, you know, the storm clouds of the judgment described in chapter 13, all those storm clouds have now moved in over the head of Jesus in chapter 14. This is a difficult and a dark section of Jesus' life as one by one his friends betray him. And yet in the midst of it, right at the beginning, Mark gives us a glimmer of what it would look like not to abandon Jesus, but to adore him. In the midst of it, as people still don't really see who Jesus is, there's a woman, an unlikely character in this story, who sees who Jesus is and worships him for it. And so that's what we're going to get to see. We're going to get to see this snapshot, this look at extravagant worship. That's what we're looking at, all right? So here's what I want to do. I want to just work through the passage and talk through the different elements of it and make sure we understand it. And then I want to come back and I want to hone in on this idea of extravagant worship. What is extravagant worship and what does it look like, all right? Now, this is another Markin sandwich. We've talked about this at different points as we've studied the Gospel of Mark. One of the things he likes to do is have a, have a three-part story where there's a, you know, kind of the bread the part at the beginning and the part at the end are sort of related. And then there's a sandwich piece in the middle, you know, the meat part that doesn't seem like it's very related, but it actually shows you kind of what this is all about. That's one of these stories as well. And so uh, we're going to help make sense of that. The first of two verses really provide the first layer of bread, all right? So verse one, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Finally, what these leaders have been plotting to do all along, they're going to do. They've been hinting at it. They've been thinking about it. Back in chapter uh, 12, Jesus actually predicted that they would, in fact, kill him. And that's what they're looking to do. The chief priests, the scribes, the people who should know what true worship of the Son of God is like, Instead say, let's kill him. They don't want to do it in the feast because there's too many people around for that. So they, they say, let's just wait until after this whole thing happens, which they're not actually able to do. And then in verse 3, we get the meat. We get this sort of uh, meat of the, of the bread that, or of the sandwich that doesn't quite look, uh, look like it fits with what just happened. It says, and while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table... A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. A couple things to notice here. Um, This is in Bethany, which is outside the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Simon the leper is, uh, we don't know who he is, but Mark's audience must have at least heard about him or known who he is. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that we think the Bible's true is because there's all these little details and references to people that the authors put in there that you wouldn't put in there unless it was like a footnote, right? Mark's saying, hey, you, you guys know Simon the leper. You can go talk to him. You could investigate this. You could hear that this really happened. So at Bethany, it's the house of Simon the leper, and they're reclining, they're hanging out, and this woman comes with pure nard. Nard, that's just fun to say, right? <laughs> Here, join with me. This is too fun to say. On the count of three, let's say nard. Ready? One, two, three, nard. nard, Right? And a bunch of you just thought of the office, and that's okay. She went all nard dog on him, okay? So, (laughs) ointment of pure nard. What is pure nard? Well, this nard is a kind of, um, it's an essential oil. 
It comes from spikenard, which is a plant, right? Many of you are involved in, in essential oils, and one of the lessons from this text is that essential oils have always been too expensive. <laughs> but she's got this ointment, pure nard. That was good. You like that. All right. This nard would have been perfume, it would have been medicinal, it would have been all the things that, you know, essential oils are kind of about, and that's what she had. And she had it in a jar, and it says there in verse 3 that she broke it. She broke the flask. So this was not like she just said, I can't spare a couple drops, right? This is like she broke the glass. It is all being used. She's holding nothing back. She's saving none of it. She's breaking it, and all of it is being poured over the head of Jesus. This probably just to, uh, by the way, a parallel passage to this that tells the same story is in John 12. And in John 12, we get the idea that it's just probably about 11 ounces, right? So it's not like this big jar and she's, you know, giving Jesus a bath in it. It's a, you know, it's a cup or so of this ointment. And she begins to pour it over his head. Now, stop for just a second. That's weird, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time you were at a dinner party and someone said, would you mind if I poured out some oil and lotion on your head? Right? This is an odd sort of thing, and especially something this valuable. And it's, it's both probably the, the weirdness of this moment and, and, and the idea that women are not to touch men like this, not in a group setting, but it's that as well as the cost of this thing that makes people so mad. It says in verse 4, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Any idea how much 300 denarii is? There's a good chance if you have a paper Bible that uh, you have a footnote there by denarii. And that footnote, just to help you understand this, says a denarius was a day's wage for a laborer. So a typical average worker would make a denarius a day. This woman takes this flask of ointment that's worth 300 denarii. This is worth a year's wages. Now, a lot of commentators uh, point out the idea that it's very unlikely that a woman in this particular time and culture would have been able to earn something like this on her own. Chances are good that this was a family heirloom, that this was a kind of inheritance that had been passed down, that was sort of the thing of like, if worse comes to worse, break the flask. You'll always have some insurance to keep, tra- you, know, to, to keep you going. That's probably what's going on here. And they're upset. They're going, a year's wages. I mean, I don't know what that would be in our day. You know, tens of thousands of dollars. You, you, you spent all that to wipe his head? Do you realize what we could have done with this money? We, we could have fed so many people. We could have cl- dug these clean wells in Africa. We could have provided clothes. We could have supported missionaries. We could have done all this stuff. And it says in the end of verse 5, and they scolded her. That word literally means their nostrils flared at her. They're indignant. They're angry. Now it doesn't say exactly who 
is angry. It seems like maybe it's the whole group. In, in John, in John's gospel, John points out that Judas in particular was very upset about this. Uh, that Judas was actually the, the guy who was in charge of the finances. He was the treasurer for this little group of 12. And he liked occasionally to help himself to some of the money. Now, we'll come back to Judas here in just a moment, but it's interesting and worth pointing out since we said he's the treasurer, you only make someone a treasurer who you trust, right? We always assume that when, Jesus, or when Judas betrayed, everyone went, oh, I, I knew it was Judas. No, they didn't know. that He was one of the most trustworthy people, they thought. That's why they made him the treasurer. But they're upset. They're troubled. I think it's worth pointing out, by the way, that that is a tension that has never gone away. Right? Even in church today, you often have people who go, well, why does the church spend money on this and not on that? Think about what we could do if we didn't have to pay all these people to do ministry here. We could pay people to, to do ministry to the poor. If we didn't have to have this building, if we didn't have to pay for air conditioning, if we didn't have to do all this you know, stuff for us, we could do all this stuff for them. And that tension never goes away. And by the way, as a church, just so you know where we stand on that, is we want people who believe strongly about both. We want people who go, you know what, it's expensive to do ministry in the United States of America. And to do ministry well, and to do ministry that honors God, and to do ministry that reaches people, takes resources, and we want to invest in it. And we also want people who go, you know what, there are poor, and there are hurting, and there are broken people, and we need to care about them, and we need to give to them, and we need to support them. We want both of those kinds of thoughts in our church, as long as we understand that this kind of lives in tension. And Jesus points out this tension in verse Six, but leave her alone, Jesus said. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Now, this verse where Jesus says, you'll always have the poor for you, this has often been misunderstood by people to go, well, we always have the poor. We don't need to take care of them. Wrong. Wrong. That totally rejects the heart of Jesus. That's not what Jesus' point is. Jesus' point isn't, who cares about the poor? They're never going away. That's how a lot of people interpret that or think about that. That's not what he says. He says, listen, you'll always have the poor, and you can always do good for them, and you should. But your time with me is short. I'm not going to be here for much longer. And you need to prioritize me over anyone else. By the way, this is an amazing statement that Jesus is making because just a few chapters ago, he said that the greatest commandment was first to love the Lord your God with all your everything and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And so for Jesus to say, love me before you love your neighbor, what is Jesus saying? I'm God. He says, guys, you've missed it. I love that you want to take care of the poor. Do you really, Judas? I love that you want to take care of the poor. You should take care of the poor. All over the Bible, true religion cares for orphans and widows. That's all over it. But Jesus says, I'm not going to be here for long. Adore me first. Verse 8, she's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That's true today, isn't it? I mean, this very day, thousands of years later, we are going through this passage and we're telling a story about this woman. Absolutely, it happened. 
And it's amazing, in verse 8, Jesus says, what she's doing is preparing my body for burial. Now, we're not really sure if she knew that that's what she was doing. Maybe she just thought, I just so adore and worship the Lord that I just want to give him this great gift. Or maybe she did. But either way, this is the only place that it ends up that Jesus is anointed for burial, right? What we'll see in chapter 16 is that the, the women go to the tomb on the third day to anoint Jesus. Because he, he had been a common criminal, right? That's what he'd been crucified with, and he was out of there. And they go to anoint him, and they can't because he's risen. And so this is Jesus' anointing for burial. And then we come back, verse 10, to the bottom layer of the bread, the bottom layer of the sandwich, right? So the first layer, the scribes, they're going to kill him. And then the next, uh, the next layer of bread is in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Think about this for a second. The scribes had said, we're not going to do this while the feast is going on, right? It's going to upset the people, not to mention that Jerusalem at this point is hundreds of thousands more people than are typically there. It'd be hard to find him. So the only way that they're allowed to accelerate their plan is because an insider betrays Jesus. An insider seeks them out. And he does it, what does it say? Based on their promise to give him money. What was his indignation about? Money. What was he willing to sell Jesus out for? Money. Maybe that's some of what Paul has in mind when he writes in 1 Timothy that the love of money is the root of all evil. We will betray even our Savior if it gets us a little cash. So, what's this sandwich about? What does this mean? What do we learn from this? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we move on, I just, I just want to show you one other thing that I think is absolutely beautiful based on the structure of this passage and based on what Mark is doing to elevate the role of women in this gospel. Sometimes in culture, people say, hey, listen, Christianity's anti-women. Christianity's patriarchal. Christianity doesn't care about the rights of women. Wrong. Read the gospel of Mark and you'll see it. Mary Healy is a wonderful commentator. She's actually from a Catholic tradition. And she points out that there are a number of similarities between this woman who worships Jesus this way and the widow that we looked at a couple chapters ago in chapter 12. The widow who gave her last two coins, all that she had. It said literally she gave her life. And Jesus commends her for that. And Mary Healy points out a number of similarities between these two women that Mark is highlighting. Uh, look at this for a second. Both women... Give generous gifts at great sacrifice. Right? One is hardly anything, two pennies, that's what the woman gives. This woman, in this story, gives something worth a year's worth. But to both of them, they were generous gifts of great sacrifice. They both give that. Jesus alone, in both stories, is the only person who recognizes the value of what they give. Everyone else overlooks it. Jesus, in both stories praises the women and says, truly I say to you, this woman has given more than everything. Or truly I say to you, this woman's story will be told. This amen, amen, truly, truly. Jesus praises them with both of that language. In both stories, there are contrasts with the scribes. The widow was in contrast to the scribes who devour widows' houses. And in this case, this woman's a contrast to the scribes who are plotting Jesus' death. 
And both of these women foreshadow the death of Jesus. How do they do that? Well, it's said in the story of the widow that she gave her whole life. And here, this woman, how does she foreshadow the death of Jesus? She anoints him for burial. All these people who are so close to Jesus still don't get it. And women, people who in that day were looked down on, women not even named, we don't know the name of the widow. Mark doesn't give us the name of this woman. These outsiders, these fringe people, these people no one would think of are the ones who truly and extravagantly worship. So, Let's think about this for a moment. What is extravagant worship? If we were going to try to learn extravagant worship from this woman, if we were going to try to take her cue and lead from her example, what would we be talking about? And so I tried this week. This was one of the hardest things to do was to think, what's extravagant worship? Because, because think about this. This story is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? It's descriptive. It describes, here's what happened. What happened is, you know, this lady took this essential oil and poured it all over his head and gave him a head massage. Who wouldn't like that, right? But, but it's not saying, now go and do likewise. Why? Well, first of all, you can't. Jesus isn't here. And secondly, this is not something, I don't know, maybe we should think about this for our small group ministry. Head anointing. Right? I mean, this is... This is it's descriptive, it's not prescriptive, and yet there's lessons to be gleaned for it about what would it look like for us to worship God extravagantly, to worship Jesus extravagantly. So I, I did my best to come up with a, a definition. What is extravagant worship? Here's just my best stab at it. Any act done out of intense devotion to God that is consistent with his word. Now, I had to add that last part because there's a lot of crazy people in the world that do a lot of things out of intense devotion to God. They strap on suicide vests. They drown their children. They shout hateful things. Right? So, so we got to add that. An act done out of intense devotion to God that is consistent with his word. Now, here's the dilemma I feel as a preacher. I know that a bunch of you would hear that and go, what in the world does that look like? Right? And, and one of the, you know, we, we do debriefs and we do discussions with our staff and our pastors and, and often they'll go, could you give a little clearer picture of like how that actually fleshes out? And, I, and, I, and so I want to try, but here's what I want to say up front. The things I'm going to describe as potential examples aren't the only examples. It could be anything. And I, I don't want to stifle your creativity. I'd want you to think, what is something I could do out of intense devotion to God that lines up with his word. It may not be any of these things. You may not like the things that I say. That's fine. I, I kind of don't even want to give you examples because I kind of want you to go, what would it look like for me? That may be a great question this week in your RCs and your small groups. What, what would it look like to give intense devotion, extravagant worship to the Lord? But I came up with a few examples. One, just based off of this, is some sort of significantly costly gift to God, to the church, to missions, to the poor. Something where you're giving not just a tithe, not just a, a little more than a tithe. You're giving extravagantly. 
right? We're always supposed to give. We're always supposed to give faithfully. The tithe is sort of the training wheels of the faith. This is an example of extravagance, of over the top. You may only do this kind of extravagant worship once in your life. But maybe it's that. Maybe it's, it's saying, you know what, I'm going to sell my house and give it all away. I don't know. I'm not saying God's calling anyone to do that. I'm not saying that's the normal Christian life. I'm saying that could be an example of extravagant, over the top. You might do this in your life. You might not. Maybe extravagant worship would look like standing in integrity in your work when everyone else around you thinks you shouldn't. You're going to hold fast and you're going to do what's right and you're not going to fudge and you're not going to lie and you're not going to twist it just a little bit even though it could technically still be ethical. You go, no, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this out of obedience to the Lord and it might cost me and it might cost me greatly but because of my extravagant love for Jesus, I'm going to be faithful. Maybe it would look like this is You know, maybe it feels smaller to some of you, but a lot bigger to others of you. Maybe it would look like singing in church with, like, out caring what anyone thought about how you sounded or looked. Right, the the, the Sletton's little girl, you know, she comes in here, you know, like a lot of times at the 9 o'clock service, and she just spins around and, you know, and, and she's, how old is she? She's almost three. And I remember when Abby would come in here, my daughter, and she would do that, and everyone would look at her, would look and go, that's awesome, right? Only really evil people go, get her out of here, get her to kids' ministry, right? <laughs> but most people would come up to me, and they would see Abby do this, and they'd go, oh, that's how we should all worship. Sure, go ahead. And maybe not that, but maybe you would go, you know what, I, I'm going to sing, and I'm going to sing loud, and I'm not going to care what people think, and I'm just going to go for it. Why? Because I love the Lord. Maybe that's what it might look like. Maybe it would be, maybe extravagant worship to you would be an extended season of prayer and fasting. I don't know what an extended season might be. Maybe a meal. Maybe a week, maybe a 40-day fast. I don't know, but where you'd go, you know what? For this season of time, I'm just going to, I'm going to give up food, and I'm going to entrust myself fully to the Lord. Again, you're not going to live that way. That's not normal life. That's not everyday stuff. This is extravagant. This is over the top. This maybe should be more every day is obeying God when it's hard. Maybe extravagant worship looks like that. When you know there's something God's calling me to do and I don't want to do it. I don't like how it feels. I don't like where it leads. I don't like who has the possibility of misunderstanding it. I don't want to, and yet I just know God is calling me to do it. Obey. So there's a handful of examples. I don't know. You think more about what they are. But extravagant worship, that's what this is. This is someone saying, I'm so enamored by Jesus, I'm willing to make a fool of myself for him. That's extravagant worship. So three things about extravagant worship. Since we've tried to talk about what is it, here's a little bit of of what it means for us. First, Extravagant worship is available. It's available. You might go, that's a weird word. Why available? Well, available means it's possible for you to do it. You could do this. And one of the things that is so beautiful about this Mark and Sandwich is the contrast. Right? We've talked about, okay, there's these two things about betrayal, and then in the middle, there's this picture of devotion. 
So what's the, what's the sandwich communicating? The communic- it's communicating a contrast. It's communicating a contrast between betrayal and worship. And not just betrayal and worship, but between insider and outsider. Think about this. Every word that Jesus uses to describe the scene of this woman is describing an outsider. Look at it, verse, uh, da, 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 verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, Bethany is in Jerusalem? No, it's outside the city. While he was at Bethany, outside, in the house of Simon the leper. Now, this guy wasn't currently a leper. He must have been healed from leprosy. But what were lepers? Outsiders. They're in Bethany. They're outside. They're at the house of Simon the leper. Who would want to hang out there? As he's reclining at table, a woman came. Why doesn't he name her? Surely Mark could have found out. I mean, surely people would have known if they didn't know who Simon the leper was, they would have known the woman who dumped his head in oil. And in fact, in the book of John in chapter 12, you can look up who she is and what her name is, but John names her. Mark could have named her. He could have put her name, but he doesn't. Why? I just, I, I'm constantly, as we go through this book, in awe of the literary genius of Mark. These are not just random stories. This is a beautifully crafted film to help you to see something. What is he getting you to see? Well, by saying it's a woman, he's saying you don't know who she is. She's not part of the inner circle. She's in Bethany on the outside, in the house of Simon the leper on the outside, and it's a woman who you don't know. She's unnamed on the outside. Meanwhile, you have Judas, verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who's one of the twelve. He's the inside. We know his name. He's followed Jesus this whole time. And so extravagant worship, Mark is telling us, is available. It is available not because you're named and not because you're known and not because you're a big deal, but because you treasure Jesus. And warning, warning, proximity to the things of God does not make you love God. See Judas. Warning, attending church does not mean you'll treasure Christ. Warning, getting your kids in student ministry is no guarantee that they will treasure Christ. Judas walked with Jesus, saw Jesus at his most vulnerable, at his most intimate, at his most powerful, and he betrayed him. And this unknown, unnamed woman worships him. It's beautiful. Second thing is that extravagant worship is vulnerable. It's available. You can do it. You can do any of those things that we said and more. But if you do it, it's vulnerable. Think about what this woman is doing. In breaking this flask, not just, you know, use a little and save some for later. She breaks it. It's gone. She lost all her savings. So she is now financially on a limb. And she doesn't necessarily lose, but she risks all of her social connections. Right? She's doing this thing that she has to know is going to make people flare their nostrils at her. It's going to make people go, what is she doing? How dare she? Right? So she loses all of her financial security. She risks all of her social capital and security. Why? 
because she trusted that in doing so, she would not be shortchanged. She trusted herself to Jesus enough to go, Jesus, if I don't have any earthly goods, and if I don't have anyone else that loves or cares for me, you're enough. You're enough. You're all that I need. You can have all the world, she says. Give me Jesus. Extravagant worship is vulnerable. And finally, extravagant worship is beautiful. It's beautiful. You see what Jesus says in verse 8 or verse 6? Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. This woman didn't just see Jesus as useful. She saw him as beautiful. This was not a transactional thing. Look, I'm going to do this for you, Jesus, and maybe you'll do this for me, right? That's how a lot of us think about God. That's how a lot of us think about prayer. I'm going to do this. God, if, I promise if this ever happens, I'll, I'll, I'll serve you and I'll be, I'll be there, right? It's transactional. It's useful. She's worshiping Jesus purely because he's worth it. It's beautiful. Have you ever thought about, right, Isaiah 6 gives us this account of the throne of God and the angels around it, day and night, shouting out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Have you ever thought about this? Every other characteristic of God, except holiness, is useful, right? God's power is useful if he can use it for you. God's love is useful. It makes you feel good. God's grace is useful. It allows you to stand in his presence. But only God's holiness is beautiful, right? God's holiness is nothing but a threat. But the angels, they say, God, you're beautiful. God, you're like nothing else. God, there's no one like you. Holy, holy, holy. Extravagant worship, any act of intense devotion in line with God's word beautiful. It's saying, I'm doing this purely out of my love for Jesus. Jesus is worth our best. And we'll see in the coming weeks that he proved it by giving his best. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word and how you shape us through it. God, I pray that you would make us men and women and students who love you and trust you. And God, there may be Uh, occasional moments in our life when we really have an opportunity to do something extravagant and over the top and kind of crazy. We have a lot of moments right now where we can serve you and we can honor you and we can obey you in normal, ordinary ways. And God, I pray that we'd be prepared to do both. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.